I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Zainab Tom. Zainab is a professor of practice in the Operations Management Group at MIT Sloan. She's also the co-founder and president of the Good Jobs Institute, which is an organization I'm sure she'll tell us more about, but basically it's there to make sure that companies thrive by creating good jobs and very much connected with that. We're here today to discuss her most recent book, which is The Case for Good Jobs, which comes out in early June from Harvard Business Review Press. In our book, Zainab discusses the importance of what she calls a good job system. I'll be asking about that and basically makes the case that if we create good jobs that are interesting and well remunerated for employees, that this will be profitable for the company too. So thank you so much for joining me today, Zainab. Thank you so much for having me, Martin. So let's get into your uh, central idea, good jobs. I, I think we all loosely have an image of that, but let's define it a little bit. What, what do you mean by a good job? At the most basic level, a good job has to pay enough so that people can have agency in their lives. And a good job has to be one where people are treated like human beings with respect and dignity. So is that because it's a moral imperative or also because it, it makes good business sense to do so too? Of course, paying people decent wages and treating them with respect and dignity is the ethical thing to do. But it's also the smart thing to do from a business point of view. Because what I have found in my research is that low pay and lack of respect and dignity is really expensive for companies. First, of course, when pay is low and people are managing multiple jobs, they can't sleep, they can't do their tasks, they can't focus on the job, and they leave. Uh, we have found that turnover costs to be 10 to 25% of payroll costs in many frontline businesses, as much as 45% of payroll costs. And it's not just high turnover that low pay causes. When companies operate with high turnover, then companies find themselves in a vicious cycle. And I first saw this vicious cycle in late 90s when I was studying retail supply chains. And I found that a lot of retail stores were full of operational problems, inventory problems, misplaced products, inaccurate data that were costing retailers a ton of money. And when I looked into what caused these problems, the top two things were employee turnover and understaffing, which is very related to employee turnover. That's very interesting. That, that reminds me of John Kay's book, Obliquity. I'm not sure whether you're familiar with that, but his idea is that just as you can't aim directly to be happy, if you strive to be happy, you won't be happy. You can't strive to be profitable by reducing costs. You're better off taking care of customers, taking care of products, and probably in your case, taking care of employees, in which case you'll have a profitable business system. Is, is that sort of the general idea? That is the general idea. And Martin, as you said, so many leaders, especially in frontline settings, think that they can't afford to invest in people, right? Because they have tight profit margins and payroll represents a huge percentage of their overall costs. And they think this is not doable. But what I found is not investing in people is actually a lot more expensive. And there is a much better way to operate. Right. Sounds like it might be a bit of a US problem, but is the intention of your book to describe a more general global phenomenon? It is a more general global phenomenon, although most of my studies have been in the United States. So you talk about the antidote to this vicious cycle being what you call a good job system. And uh, you talk about five choices which define a good job system. 
Tell us at a high level about those five key choices that define a good job system. Yes. And before I get to those five choices, Martin, let me just mention good job system is not just about paying people more or being nice. It's about winning. It's about winning with your customers. What does it take to win? You need to have a great team that's set up for success, right? So the first component of the good job system is investment in people. But the secret sauce of the good job system is the four operational choices that make employees work better and that increases their productivity and contribution so that the company can invest in them. And these four choices, focus and simplify, standardize and empower, cross-train, operate with Slack, nobody would be surprised about these. Greg Foran, the former US CEO of Walmart, said once that this is so blindingly obvious. These are management practices that have been known as you know, good practices for decades. Let me just repeat your list because it's an important one in case people didn't catch it. So your four operational imperatives are focus and simplify, standardize and empower, cross-train, and also build in Slack. We'll come to those in a minute. But could you give us, just to kick off, an example of a company that, in your view, has a good job system? Yeah, I mean, there are multiple examples. My first uh, set of companies that I studied were Costco, a warehouse club in the United States, Quick Trip a convenience store chain with gas stations, highly profitable, very successful convenience store chain in the United States. Mercadona, a Spanish retailer, low-cost retailer, and Trader Joe's. But the list goes on. I mean, Four Seasons, Progressive Insurance, there are a bunch of companies that are adopting a good job system. And most recently, there have been companies that didn't used to have a good job system, but that have changed. And they include Quest Diagnostics in their call centers, Walmart's Sam's Club in their warehouse clubs, a small retailer called Mud Bay in the Northwest and restaurant chains. And then that list continues as well. Okay. Well, it's, it's interesting that you gave quite a lot of retailers there. I guess retail is a sector where often there's pressure on cost, margins are very thin. And I, I guess you can go the, the more obvious route of, of reducing labor costs or this less obvious route that you're proposing of actually investing in people. Is that what you gave? So many retail examples. Yeah, because if you can do this in low-cost retail, you can do this anywhere. One of the companies that recently adopted the good job system is Mudbay. When they started, their profit margins were 2%. Their payroll costs were about 15% of sales. And they increased pay by 24% in their first three years. Imagine, that would have you know, shrunk all their profits if they didn't do the other operational choices. But what is exciting is that even in these settings, you can do this. And now Mudbay pays a living wage in every city that they operate. So that's what inspires me that companies can make this change even in highly competitive, low margin industries. Let's dig into some of your imperatives. So one of them was focus and simplify. Tell us about that. Tell us how focusing and simplifying improves a lot of the employee, but also the, the fate of the business. Yes. So in a typical company, especially in large businesses, in the home office, there are silos and they are constantly making decisions that increase the workload in the front lines. And sometimes those silos that make decisions that not only increase the workload, but make the workload very unpredictable and very inconsistent. In a good job system, everyone knows that frontline is where you meet the customer. So you make those decisions in the home office to both improve the productivity of your frontline workers, but also set them up for success. For example, if you go to a Mercadona store, 
you won't see 40,000 different products like you will see in a typical retail store. You will see 8,000 products. Now, what does that mean? What does that upstream choice make for the front lines? It means that now they're more productive and they shall merchandise. It means that people in different areas can be more knowledgeable about the products and services that they sell so they can help the customers better. It means that now that they're doing a good job, they find more meaning in their work and that is motivating. And it also means that because they're more productive, Mercadona can pay them more. I guess, like most things, this is probably a balance problem, though, isn't it? In the sense that not all complexity is bad. For instance, innovation creates a certain form of complexity. How do you know how far to go with simplification? Oh, absolutely. And when Sam's Club, for example, adopted their good job system, they realized that they were increasing complexity in their stores because they were embracing omnichannel retail. That brings some complexity. So then you ask, where do I simplify? My best framework for this, Martin, comes from Costco, because oftentimes, you know, we add so much without thinking, right? We companies tend to add because they're under constant sales, you know, top line pressure, and they add whatever they can add to be able to grow the top line, right? So that is not innovation, but that is just maximizing sales. Companies like Costco that have changed so much over time, that have evolved over time, they have discipline in their experimentation. So before Costco adds a product or a service, before they experiment, they ask three questions. The first question is, can we do this well? The second is, can we save our customers money? Because that's what their value proposition is. And then the third question is, can we make money? If the answer to all of these questions is yes, then they experiment. But they don't use experimentation or piloting as a substitute for thinking or strategy. Right, they've put some boundaries around it. Okay, that's very good. So let's take another one of them, uh, Slack. Slack probably sounds scary to any CFO. It, it means people not doing their job in some sort of loose sense. So presumably you see this as, as a good thing. Uh, tell me about the positive effects of Slack. And again, the more subtle question of how you calibrate the, the right amount of Slack. Yes, so any CFO that has taken operations classes in their business education, if they had a business education, would know that operate with Slack is actually the optimal strategy they must have learned from their queuing theory or from Newsmender is the optimal strategy when there's any variability in your system. And of course, businesses now with all the complexity, all the customers, there's tremendous variability. And how much Slack, right? The question is like, how much Slack? Where, where do you see the balance? The first one is, first look at the workload and variability of workload, try to calculate it and try to find ways to reduce that workload and variability of that workload as much as possible. Because the more variability there is, the more slack that you need. And the second is constantly get feedback from your front lines, right? Just don't look at just the numbers about this is how much work we need and this is how much slack we must have. Try, experiment, get feedback from the front lines and you will know what the best way is for your customers, for your front lines to be able to do a good job and for, for your bottom line. I guess a tricky issue there, maybe even a slightly sensitive one, is asking your employees is probably part of that equation, knowing you know, how much slack to have. But you know, employees have vested interests, and they may not know the correct optimum in the grand scheme of things. What other signals do you look for apart from the sentiment of the employees in, in calibrating the amount of slack? Martin, one thing I will say, operate with slack only works in systems where there are no slackers. 
So this is this comes to the the system view of the good job system that companies that use Slack really well have done the other operational choices. Like they have focused and simplified, they've empowered their employees. Their employees are vested in the company's success because when the company does well, then they do well too. And in that type of a system, you get much better feedback from your front lines. There's a comment in your book that I found intriguing about profit hiding many sins and not necessarily being the, the best indicator of, of what to do with respect to making good jobs. Certainly, profit is, is a backward-looking indicator. I mean, it's, it's well known that many companies have some of their best years, their most profitable years, just before they fail. But what is your thinking on profit being, although it may be the goal of the company, it may not be the best indicator for making these sorts of system decisions? Yeah, oftentimes when we work with companies, we encourage them to, to look at three sets of metrics to see if their business is healthy and if there are problems. And those metrics are related to customers. They're the number one in the hierarchy. Like good jobs system, again, is about winning with your customers. So metrics related to your customer performance, loyalty, NPS could be one. Other metrics related to how well you're doing with your customers. The second one is around your employees, both employee turnover and what percentage of your employees are making a living wage and internal promotion. And then the third one is around operational execution and productivity. If you are falling behind in any of these three source of metrics, it means that there is something wrong in your system, right? You can be doing great things for your customers, but if you don't have high productivity, you may not be able to afford to keep those customers. Or you may be able to do a great job for your employees. But again, if you don't have high productivity, then that's not going to be sustainable either. I guess this is related to another point you make in the book, which is about overusing or over-relying on data. You say that, in a sense, courage is required beyond what the data says to make some of the right decisions in, in creating the right working system. Could you explain your thinking there a little bit to us? Yes, absolutely. First, I want to make it clear that you know pilots and data are tools that have been used by companies that adopted the good job system. But it's really important to understand where to use them and where not to use them. So my problem, and, and I teach at MIT Sloan, so of course we love data, we love analysis, but here is the big problem with, with data. One is when we try to identify cause and effect relationships, when there's a system that's much broader than just cause and effect of two different variables, and then the second is when we look at the history to predict the future. Now, one of the companies, as I mentioned, that adopted the good job system is Sam's Club. And there was a recent interview with their chief product officer. And he said that during the last couple of years, they have been able to increase efficiency by 20%. And he said, if we looked at our historical data, we had historically increased efficiency 1%, 2%. We could have never imagined 20% increase if we just looked at historical data and if we analyze it. So that's where you need the courage to understand the theory and say, okay, this makes sense. I need to do this to be able to survive and thrive. And these are the changes that we'll have to make. So it sounds like you might be saying two things there. The things you have data on, our sense are limited by history and we may need to go beyond history. And I also hear you saying that in relation to doing the right things for the future, we may not we may not have the data. It may require an act of courage or faith or values or a qualitative judgment in order to get to a situation where you will have data on efficiency improvements. Is that the idea? That's the first part. And then the second part is that cause and effects are not 
you know, business is not science, right? We hope that it, we wish it was more like science, but it's not. We have agency to change the outcomes. The companies that adopted the good job system, they first said, what do we want to do? We want to win with our customers. Can we win with our customers if we don't have a great team and if we don't have great operational execution? The question was a clear no. Now the question was, can we have a great team and strong execution if we don't reduce our turnover? And the answer was no. Now the next question is, can we reduce our turnover if we don't pay our employees well and if we don't set them up for success? So that type of logic, the theory led them to courage and conviction. Right. Now you're concerned with good jobs, and I guess a an even bigger problem is jobs or not. And you know, we're living in a time when AI is making very rapid progress, and that follows on the heels of other digital technologies making rapid progress. And you know, the fear, I guess, is that that results in job substitution. So there may not be, you know, enough jobs to to become good. You have a section where you deal with the synergy between technology and labor in the book. Could you tell us your thinking on that? Yes. First, AI seems to be more of a threat for you know for people who do information processing or cognitive tasks, especially with ChatGPT. That's what we've been seeing, but. AI doesn't or robots don't happen to us. It depends on how we use them, right? One way to use that is to say, okay, I'm just going to substitute labor. Whatever it takes, I want to cut costs. That's the cost-cutting mentality. I want to substitute labor. But another way to look at AI or, or, or investment in automation is to say, I'm going to use this to improve the customer experience and to increase productivity of employees. So again, I'll give an example from Sam's Club. They embrace technologies in a way that reduced the workload tremendously for their front lines, empowered them, and enabled them to make five, seven dollar an hour wage investments in their frontline employees. If you went to Sam's Club to buy a tire for your car, previously it would take you half an hour because the frontline employee would spend so much time going through tedious different manuals to figure out which tire was the best for your car. Now it takes them like four minutes. Yeah, let's, let's try and calibrate that a bit because I, I do understand that it may be necessary to train employees and value employees in order to best use technologies. So that's one type of synergy. I do understand that if you automate away frontline employees, your business may in some cases suffer. But I, I wonder if they're not, in other cases, places where substitution is possible, inevitable, and while we might remove some jobs through a process of creative destruction, it may ultimately result in the creation of, of other jobs. So again, it comes back to an issue of calibration. How do, we, how do we manage the balance between technology, productivity, and job quality? I love what people at Mercadona told me when I visited them because they had just automated their entire fulfillment center. That's a lot of jobs to take out, right? They did not lay off anyone because they found other ways for their employees to contribute to the company. They were growing, so they didn't have to lay off anyone. But the question they asked, their premise was, we never want to ask a person to do what a machine can do. I think that should be our attitude as, as we think about technology substitution. Now, the good news for all of us is that when you look at predictions for the future, there will be more jobs than there are people who can take them because demographics is people are not having as many, as many kids. Baby boomers are retiring. So our worry is not that, oh my God, we're going to run out of jobs. It's that there will be too many jobs for the number of people that we have in this country and in some other countries as well. So I'm not worried about that problem, Martin. 
And my colleagues at MIT don't seem to be worried about that problem, those economists. Well, that's an important clarification. I, I, maybe I missed that in the book. But so when you say good jobs, you don't necessarily mean making the jobs that happen to exist today good. You mean whether today's jobs or tomorrow's jobs, making the jobs that will be good. I'm saying there are a lot of bad jobs in the economy right now, and we should transform them into good jobs. Right. Today and tomorrow. And then in, in some cases may not be an issue of, of manner. It may be an issue of substance. Okay. So you, you explicitly focus your book on frontline employees. And I think the logic for that is very understandable because it's often the, the frontline employees that are overworked and, uh, and arguably underpaid and so on. I'm wondering about the potential for your philosophy of good jobs for other job categories. Uh, so let's pick a random one. Academics, you know, much has been written about, you know, the appalling fate of associate professors and so on, the, uh, the workload and the pay. Is there a case for applying this philosophy to other types of job too? I think so. And Martin, I thought I would ask you this question back to you. Mm. Like, could you see this apply in your organization, right? You, you, you are in a large consulting firm and BCG has done some fantastic work, for example, on the operate the Slack part, giving people enough time to be able to do their job and taking some deliberate time off. It seems like you are investing in your people to be able to, you know, keep them longer and create a career path for them. I imagine that you empower the people who are working and also standardize lots of things so that it's a lot more efficient. And I imagine that workload is like you want it to be as streamlined as possible, as simple as possible, so that people can be experts and, and be a good job. Yes, precisely. Well, I, let me answer your question. Let's, let's do some role reversal here. So yes, I mean, I think quite obviously we're a people business and we need good people and we need good people giving their best. And so you have to look after the people and you have to look after their mental health. For some years and, and still, we experimented with a philosophy called predictable time off, PTO. And we use the same initials. I believe they now stand for something else. But the idea is that it's not just the amount of work that's a problem. It's the unpredictability of the work. And you can simplify people's lives very much if you create predictability of time off, you know, time off so that you can be sure that you can go to the, the symphony on Wednesday night if that's what you want to do. So yes, indeed, I think we're already already applying this philosophy to, to our work as best we can. Of course, it's a, it's a constant struggle because like technology, consulting moves very fast. The problems evolve. And, and so one has to constantly look at this problem in, in, in new ways. Yeah, and it's a constant struggle for all organizations because we know that one thing that doesn't change is change. I will say there's one key difference between the settings like your setting or the setting that I work in. And it's an important distinction, which is the importance of pay. Because for those of us who make more than enough to be able to pay our bills, pay is not such a big deal, right? But for people who are paid so little that they have to work multiple jobs, they can't sleep. They are constantly thinking and stressed about, am I going to be able to pay this bill or that bill? Pay is everything. And those of us who make more than enough oftentimes underappreciate how important pay is and consistent pay is for someone's well-being. Yes. I mean, have you heard the phrase uh, sweat to dollars ratio? No. In consulting, I hear this phrase a lot, sweat to dollars. <laughs> I guess different jobs have different trade-offs, different balance of, uh, is time the rate limiting quantity? Is money the rate limiting quantity? I think consultants and many other professions are quite well paid. The people don't necessarily have enormous amounts of free time. So that's where the, the highest marginal return is. And 
I guess we get into psychology here. You know, what is most important to people? I guess you could say it, it could be dollars. It could be, it could be time. It could be autonomy. It could be mastery. So in a sense, I'm asking, what are we optimizing for when we try to implement good jobs? Yeah. Again, once the basic things pay and you're being treated like a human is taken care of with, with respect and dignity, what we're optimizing for very much could depend on from person to person. But time, to me, those four choices make such a huge impact in my life, operating with Slack to be able to do a good job, to be able to take care of my family and my, and, and my work at the same time, cross-training. My husband and I are cross-trained so that we can, you know, substitute for, for one another and constantly focusing and simplifying. So all of those things make my job a better job for me. Um, but what it means for other people. So unfortunately, we might be running out of time. So let me get to the sort of what to do differently on Monday morning question. So supposing a, a CEO is listening to this podcast and says, yes, this sounds very intriguing. I'd like, to, I'd like to do that. Where do they begin? How do they conceive of the program? If they're not already doing this, where, where would you begin? Yeah, the first thing is to create urgency and alignment around this. Don't do this because it's a nice thing to do. Try to identify why is it that winning with your customers is crucial for you to be able to survive and grow in the future. So I ask, I tell the companies, don't frame this around people, hum, you know, workers. It's not about good jobs. It's about winning. So, so I think framing it that way and then getting as many functions that touch the work that frontline employees do as much as possible to be aligned around this change is super important. At Good Jobs Institute, we run two-day workshops with companies to get them in the same room understand their struggles, understand their problems, and then see a way forward. But getting those cross-sectional people in the room aligned around this is super important. And then the next one is, how do you make changes to get out of the vicious cycle without breaking the bank, right? For a CFO, how do you make pay investments in a way that doesn't reduce your bottom line? And, and we have found some high leverage points in workload reduction that enables them to do that. So just to wrap up, let's get a little bit personal, if, if I may. So you teach at a business school, you run an institute, you have a big family. It seems to me that you're under quite a lot of front, frontline pressure. Do you use some of these philosophies in your own life? Yes, I do. Every day, every day. And especially focus and simplify, which sometimes drive my children crazy because they're saying, but so-and-so is doing that. So-and-so is doing that. I'm like, no, this is what we'll do for our family. So can you give me an example? Because I think this is one that we'll all identify with. What's a typical family situation where there's always scope for simplification, for example? You know, companies oftentimes imitate what others do to grow sales, right? In families, we oftentimes see so many other families whose kids are doing 10 million different activities. And I have four kids. If we were doing 10 million different activities for each of those kids, we would have no time for our family. We would have no time you know, to sit down for dinner at nights and spend time during the weekend. So, so this is one where we say, okay, find one or two that you really want to do. And let's, let's do that. And let's try to bundle as much as possible so that we have more time together as a family. Yes, I, I think I'll be uh, rereading your book with, with all of this in mind <laughs> as soon as we finish today. So thank you so much and congratulations on, on the book. Thank you so much, Martin. So I've been uh, joined today by Zainab Ton, a professor at MIT Sloan, talking about a new book, The Case for Good Jobs, which comes out in June from HBR Press. I think a topic which is applicable to virtually any business. 
that there's always a tendency to do more and more and to adopt a very sort of linear mindset towards costs and revenues. And I think Zainab is inviting us, in my words, to just stand back and think about, you know, how we're winning and and how we can simplify and maximize human potential and human resources against that goal. So I think a useful read for any of our listeners. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you're subscribed to it on your favorite podcasting service. And as always, we welcome your feedback. Please reach out to the BCG Henderson Institute.